Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back everybody to our study of the Evercatinos and uh, thank you for your patience for last week. I was just feeling a little under the weather and uh, so, but caught my breath and ready to go again. Uh, I just asked Ren uh, how far along we are and this is the 93rd week, uh, 93rd meeting of the Evercatinos. So we're moving right along. We're about three quarters of the way through the first volume. And tonight we're picking up on 290, page 290, with uh, number six, about halfway down the page. A couple more coming in here. And so over these past weeks, and many weeks, in fact, we've been discussing the nature of asceticism, and we've moved into the specific practice of it, how it is that one embraces it, incorporates it into the spiritual life. And now the, the authors are drawing us into uh, the importance of a spiritual elder or spiritual director and how this uh, asceticism is lived out in obedience and the fruit of that obedience. Uh, not only uh, is it uh, sort of setting aside of our own will, but it bears specific fruit for us uh, in terms of overcoming certain passions and fostering virtues, certainly overcoming pride, but also fostering humility. Uh, but we also will see uh, that they saw it very much uh, as a defense against the demons and those who attempt us away from God. And so uh, it wasn't only something that uh, fostered humility, but it's also something that allows us to enter into the spiritual battle more fully. Uh, we are not as susceptible uh, to, as it's often been described, the trickery of the demons. And so these are some of the things that we'll be looking at again this evening. Again, on page 290, paragraph six. An elder had a disciple whom he had ransomed and who did perfect obedience to him. One day the elder said to him, go light the oven well, take the book that we are reading in this Synaxis and throw it into the oven. The disciple did exactly as the elder had directed him without any objection. As soon as he had thrown the book into the oven, the oven went out. So, Again, one of those uh, kind of extraordinary stories that we've come across so often uh, throughout the readings of both Climacus and the Evercatinos, uh, this absolute kind of obedience that, uh, as we've talked about many times before, is not given easily, that uh, these were men who chose specifically to enter into a monastic life or enter into a skeet, a small community uh, under obedience to a particular elder and one that they were willing to entrust themselves to. And as we see here, entrust themselves to in a kind of absolute fashion. We see a kind of figure almost of Abraham coming out in so many different uh, stories that we will be encountering here in the coming pages. You know, this response to God or response in this case to one's elder uh, and entrusting one's will to him, even when it goes against one's own sensibilities or it's rigorous, uh, something that is very difficult to embrace. And even in this little story here, uh, take the book that we've been reading and throw it into the fire. And you know, books weren't easy to come by back then. I'm sure it would have been a very difficult thing uh, to 
toss it into the fire simply at the word of this elder. But the obedience had been so well formed that also what came with it was a, a deep kind of trust in the goodness and the love of the elder. That this relationship is, if you remember, we've talked about many times before, uh, was ever so important, but it was also rooted in love. And where the elder has a kind of moral and spiritual responsibility for his disciple. And uh, so there was love, affection there, a radical kind of openness. There was a revelation of one's thoughts on a daily basis to one's elder. And so over the course of time, a deep love and respect, and especially for the elder who had this kind of experiential knowledge of everything that he was seeking to pass on to the disciple. And so was able to foster this deep trust. And I think for us in our day, it might be a little bit more difficult, certainly to uh, find uh, such an elder, uh, even within the monastic life. Uh, but uh, I think it's important for us to, as we read it, to connect it in our mind to what we see in Christ, that the obedience that we see within these men is meant to be a reflection of the obedience of Christ to his heavenly father a willingness to embrace uh, what God asks of us in this life, to take up our cross daily and to follow the Lord, uh, even when that goes against our sensibilities or when it is uh, uh, even sort of taken from our hands in some ways. And uh, we have to embrace it with a kind of trust in the providence of God, that he will bring about good for our salvation or foster a virtue within us that is needed for our salvation. And so the obedience that's asked of us is as great as we see here. Uh, some of these you know, are uh, stretched, you know, stretch our sensibilities to their limit. Uh, but again, I think if we can hold, hold them uh, up in light of the obedience of Christ, then we can see them for what they are. Number seven, the elders said that if one has trust in someone and is completely subject to him, he no longer needs to heed the commandments of God, but should submit his wishes to his spiritual father, and he will not have sinned before God. God seeks nothing else from beginners than the trial of obedience. Now, you know, when we read this, we have to be careful. I think what is being said is that the elder takes this special place in the novice's life. And this obedience to the elder, if you remember the word obedience comes from ab adore, to hear. And so to be teachable, to set aside one's will, to be shown this path uh, that leads to uh, purity of heart, freedom from the passions that, the responsibility in some sense is given over to the elder for the disciple, that he bears the weight of the salvation of the one in his care. And so whatever is asked of him and what, uh, or whatever he asks of his disciple uh, is on his shoulders. And so everything has to be put before the disciple as something that is for his greater good. Uh, for the perfecting of virtue, 
that has to arise out of love, but also again, out of experience. So there is a great weight that's put on the shoulders of a spiritual elder uh, to be living the life and have lived it intensely for many years to be in a sense, Christ for his disciple, uh, to be so conformed uh, and so loving that the disciples able to respond without any question. Again, even when the, the sensibilities or judgments, as we will see in some of the stories, uh, when, when the judgment to be obedient would seem hard to make. A brother who was going from the skeet to reap in the fields went to a well-known elder and asked him, tell me, Abba, what should I do now that I'm going to the harvest? If I tell you, will you obey? The elder replied, yes, I will obey you. Then the elder continued, as long as you are disposed to obey, abandon this harvest, return to your cell, and shut yourself up there for 50 days eating only bread and salt every evening. After that, come to me, and I will tell you what else you should do. The brother returned and did as he was instructed. After 50 days, he visited the elder again. The elder, knowing that the brother was a struggler, gave him directions on how to live in his cell. So he threw himself to the ground face first and wept before God for three days. His thoughts then said to him, you have now scaled the heights, you have become great. At that moment, the brother called to mind his sins and said to himself, where are all my sins? After he had enumerated his sins one by one, his thoughts changed their tactics and said to him, you've committed many sins and you cannot be saved. But their brother replied, I will say a few prayers before God. And I believe that in his boundless compassion, he will have mercy on me. After he had warred and been warred upon for a long time in this manner, the evil spirits were finally defeated and they appeared before him visibly and said to him, you have conquered us. Why, asked the brother. The evil spirits answered, if we exalt you, you hasten to humble yourself. And if, you, if we humble you, then you raise yourself up high. They disappeared after the brother had rebuked them. And so the elder prepares him, you know, seeing that he is a struggler, he prepares him to enter into a greater battle, something greater than the obedience of going into the harvest and doing the obedience of the work would provide him to enter into something that was more challenging, which would be the silence of his own self and to enter into unceasing prayer there along with fasting. So to give himself over to God in mind and body and, and there to do war, not only with his own passions, because in some sense he had uh, been perfected in, uh, in his humility and in his obedience, but there to do war against the demons themselves, to have that virtue be put to the test and purified by fire, as it were, and this is exactly what happens. Thoughts are put before him uh, that lead him to think initially that he has no sin. And so immediately he begins to combat it by calling to his sins to mind one by one. And then the opposite tactic is taken against him. Uh, you have so many sins that you're damned. There's no way for you to be saved. 
And once again, he combats it and throws himself upon the mercy of God. And so he leaves this uh, battlefield, uh, having had the virtue uh, purified uh, in fire. And in so many ways, the desert was a place where men were forged in fire, that they, uh, not just by the heat of the desert, but by this kind of spiritual battle with the demons themselves. They would receive guidance and destruction, instruction from their elder uh, through obedience, but ultimately uh, the, the greater testing would take place in and through their prayer life and uh, through often these kind of demonic attacks, the temptations that would come to them. Any comments or questions so far on any of the paragraphs? Angela, did you have a thought? Um, yes. Mm -hmm. um, in paragraph seven, um, I'm, I'm just trying to um, apply this to our, our lives today. And it seems to me that uh, no longer needing to heed the commandment of God because of obedience, it sort of annihilates the natural law um, and one's conscience. And how how would you advise uh, advise us to to deal with that? Well, yeah, it's a great question, and uh, you know, as I as I thought about it, uh, and this is part of the reason that I wanted to put it in the context of that relationship with the elder, the relationship of love and trust. Uh, there's one saint, I think, is it Augustine, who says, "Love and do what you will." that in some sense, it's the love of God that allows us to see with a greater clarity and that purifies the heart. It's not just the, the legalistic following and, and fulfilling of commandments, but it's, the real, it's truly giving one's heart over to God in such a way that we desire what God desires. And so the more perfect our desire for him becomes, the more perfect our love for him becomes, the more we entrust ourselves to him. And so it's not that we have to think in our mind about what to do. Uh, it, uh, it becomes something that we respond to uh, in and through the relationship with him and that presents that we are presented with in our day-to-day -day life to the, the point that we do what would fulfill the will of God. We do what is loving and we do what is obedient. And so the point that we don't have to examine it. And so how else would Augustine say that? Love and do what you will. That you're being guided by something that is greater and that reveals the fullness of the truth. That for us, a truth is truth is a person, it's Christ. And so to enter into that relationship and to give oneself over to it wholly is to be guided by something greater. And I just did a little group for the, the students on the, this weekend about fasting. And we talked about what really alters the Christian vision of fasting. And it's Christ himself who says, uh, you know, while they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But when the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast. And altogether, new kind of fasting will begin to emerge 
that is tied directly to their relationship with him as heavenly bridegroom and as the individual soul and the church ultimately is the bride of Christ. And that fasting will be forever now tied to this longing, this desire for what Christ alone can fulfill within the human soul. He satisfies a hunger uh, that nothing in this world could provide. And so fasting is no longer preparing us to enter into battle or to understand the Holy Scripture or to do penance for sins that we've committed, but it's to increase a longing, a hunger within the soul for Christ and for Christ alone that we experience in a, on a bodily level our desire for him. And if we take this and we look at what's being said here, is that that love perfected, whether it's in terms of being directed towards the elder who stands in the place of God or in the place of Christ for the disciple uh, or in our relationship, that there is uh, a point where one is being guided by the spirit of truth that dwells within us, that searches the depths of the soul and searches the very depths of God. And so we bear within us the, the, the very spirit of God that guides us into all truth, the scripture tells us. And, you know, even after 2000 years, I think we have a hard time wrapping our mind around that, that we've been called to something far greater and through the ultimate goal and aim of the spiritual life, which is deification, participation within the life of the Holy Trinity, that we are called to uh, be a part of this divine life where we are able to experience and perceive and to comprehend the fullness of the truth. And so our struggle in this world is not just to avoid sin. Our struggle in this life is not simply to be obedient to fulfilling certain prescriptions of the law. Our call is to this radical holiness it's a call to participate in the fullness of the life of God. It's to live for him, to die to self and sin, and live for him alone. And this is something that's only guided and made possible by grace, the perfection of love, uh, and when we give ourselves over to it. And uh, I think when we see things in this way, I think it makes statements like this not only less jarring, but less confusing, where we would say, absolutely. If we believe that Christ, if we believe and take Christ at his word, I am the way, the truth, and the life, then to love and give ourselves to him in love and to receive his love fully in the Eucharist is going to make this understandable, as well as the quote from that other saint, love and do what you will. He's not calling for this kind of hedonism, just do whatever you want you know, uh, 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 you know, a kind of lawlessness, uh, you know, Christ even had to tell the people of his day, you know, I haven't come to destroy the law, I've come to fulfill it, to internalize it on this radical level, where it becomes part of who you are, and shapes your very identity, because you become part of something greater, the very body of Christ, animated by that spirit of truth and spirit of love. And, uh, and so, you know, we come to perceive and understand who God is and who we are 
and the path that we are to take with a greater clarity than the law could ever offer us. And, you know, we, I think part of our struggle is that we like boundaries and we like things that are clearly understandable and controllable, uh, even on an intellectual level. And so to enter into this relationship, you know, that scripture passage is a fearful thing or a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God, because then all of a sudden you have to let go of all willfulness, of all surety in the sense of your perception of what is true, what is good, what is loving, and allow God to guide you uh, along a path that might seem very dark to you, along the same path that Christ himself trod. And uh, I think this is, again, what I love about the fathers. They push us not to, in the sense to embrace the life that they embrace, but they push us toward the truth of the gospel and push us toward Christ. What does it mean to live in him and to be animated by his spirit of love and truth? What does that look like for our, our life in this world? And we can create this whole Christian identity and that is lived very much at the surface level and has very little to do with that relationship with Christ. And in fact, this has been a constant struggle throughout you know, the, the history of the church. You know, people talk about, you know, uh, people teaching heresy or the church struggling against particular heresies throughout the centuries. Yes, that's true. But interiorly, you know, again, the capacity for self-delusion is great. Look, look at what this young monk experienced here. You know, the deem, he's, he enters in, into the depths of his heart where his spiritual elder leads him. And there he does battle. And he has to let go of his own judgment and humble himself uh, in every way and hold fast to what his elder told him. Stay within that cell, fast and pray, and there do battle and hold on to what you've been taught. And so the demons do everything they can to draw him away from that truth. That salvation comes by the grace and mercy of God. Let go of the illusion that you can save yourself or that you've reached this level of perfection, but also let go of the fear and the anxiety that often weighs down the human heart, that you are damned. That despite the fact that the stone has been rolled away from the, the, the door of the tomb, for most many people and an enormous number of people, that that tomb is still sealed. And they believe they're damned. And, you know, these are faithful Christians I'm talking about. You know, those who believe, but in their heart of hearts, believe because of their life or the things that they struggle with, that they're beyond salvation, that they're beyond the mercy of God. And so, you know, this is where, you know, the battle to live in love and truth takes place. It's within the human heart. And we always want to externalize it you know, to turn it into these intellectual battles outside of ourselves. And it, when we do that, the battle is lost. You know, when we, if, if 
the kingdom of God is within us. You know, all that the evil one needs to do is direct us towards things outside of us, even religious things, in such a way that he can distort our, our vision. We can our trust in the mercy of God, but fill us with pride that we see things with this great, you know, great clarity. And, you know, we can tell people what path, you know, they need to walk or where the church is going wrong or where this bishop or that bishop is going wrong or where the Pope is failing us. You know, it's the, as long as people live in this world, you know, it becomes very easy to ignore the infidelity within our own hearts. And the saints tell us over and over again, if there's darkness in the world, uh, if there's corruption within the world, we need to look no further than ourselves. That we are called to be light to the world, salt of the earth, you know, to preserve the world from corruption, to illuminate it with the, the life and the love and the truth of Christ. And so if darkness seems to be, you know, uh, swallowing up the world around us, where we need to go is within to greater conversion and repentance of mind and heart. And so it's a great question because I think many people have taken that. And if I'm correct, I mean, somebody, if somebody wants to look it up, the love and do what you will. I think sometimes people have taken that and thinking, well, you know, if I love God, then, you know, that, that's what's important, that how I live my life is of no circumstance. You know, certainly that path has been taken over the course of time. But there's something far deeper that's being said here. It's saying that if this disciple lives in love with his elder and has this trust in him and the elder has this perfect love for his disciple where he wants above all things to bring him to salvation, bring him to Christ, then he, he need not uh, be focused upon the commandments so much as focusing on being obedient because as we've heard so often in the past that obedience makes a person a confessor of the faith because they are so conformed to what we see in Christ becomes obedient even unto death death on a cross uh, Anthony writes is this why there are numerous examples of the monastic in tears but little about the sacrament of confession because they saw their hearts and were in a state of grief and contrition. Yes, you know, I think so much, you know, it's hard in a lot of these writings, they're talking about praxis, you know, the spiritual battle on a day-to-day -day basis. And so much is taken for granted, including the sacramental life. Every once in a while you hear about it, receiving the divine mysteries, going to confession, sacramental confession. Uh, but the focus is on, okay, what's the, the fruit of this in our day-to-day -day life? How do we exercise our faith uh, in a concrete way from moment to moment? And, and as you said, you know, what we would hear more about from them is what contrition, compunction looks like, true sorrow for one's sin that leads one back to Christ. Uh, and that would, you know, if uh, a serious and weighty sin that would include the sacrament of confession itself. Thank you, Lee. Love and do what you will, Augustine. 
a sermon on love. Very good, thank you. So it was Augustine, lucky guess. So, it's all right if we move on. Any other thoughts or comments? Okay, uh, let's see where I, number nine on page 291. Once a worldly man who had three sons left them in the city and went off to a monastery. After staying for three years in the monastery, he began to be bothered by thoughts that reminded him of his sons and awoke him in him a longing for them. As a result, he experienced great grief over his sons. He had not said anything to the abbot of the monastery at the outset when he entered about the fact that he had children. When the abbot saw that the man was frequently distressed, he asked him one day, what is the matter with you? that you are so gloomy. I have three sons in the world, he replied, replied the monk, and I want to bring them to the monastery. The abbot gave him leave to do so. The brother returned to the city. Two of his sons had died in the meantime, and only one remained alive. He took him along and returned at once to the monastery. He looked for the abbot and found him in the bakery where he presented his son to him. The abbot then embraced and kissed the boy while saying to his father, do you love your son? I certainly do, answered the father. Then take him and throw him into the oven that is now burning. The brother immediately took his son with his own hands and threw him into the oven. And oh, the wonder, at once the fire of the oven became dew and it did not burn the boy. His father won the same glory that the patriarch Abraham had. So, you know, again, uh, whether or not this is hagiography or, uh, or, or if there's some uh, element of truth within it, uh, I think what we are to contemplate, again, is, you know, the, is stated specifically here, the obedience of Abraham, that he's asked to relinquish the one thing that he had prayed for and that had given him hope, that he had a son in his old age. And here he's asked by God to sacrifice him. And so similarly, this monk who uh, is, you know, goes, you know, finally admits that he has children and has sons, has one remaining and is asked to do the same thing by the elder uh, as a test to that obedience. And, and like God, you know, that it's not asked of him to make that sacrifice, that the sacrifice is made by God himself. But nonetheless, we are to, meant to see within this image, again, that we're often going to be called to sacrifice the things that seem precious to us in our mind, that are dear to us in our mind, uh, not uh, perhaps sacrificing our children or throwing them in ovens because we're asked to by a monk, but relinquishing things that perhaps we've uh, held on to or felt were dear to us, or we've become very attached to that because of circumstances in our life or where God is leading us, we're asked to let go of our attachment to them in order that our attachment to God might grow and deepen. And so many of the saints tell us that, you know, we overcome our, our sin 
not by our struggle with it, by, but by increasing our attachment to God, where the sin itself and the attachment to the sin is pushed out because of the greater attachment to God and to his will. And, uh, and so, again, part of the obedience and the response in obedience that we see in these monks is their capacity to hear what has already been revealed to them within the scripture, in the patriarchs, but most especially within Christ himself, that in and through this obedient and selfless love, salvation is found, redemption is found. And uh, this is what we are not only to believe and embrace for ourselves, but bear, to bear witness to within the world. And again, not in an abstract way, in an emotional way by talking about it, but, but by living, living it fully, that what we see in Christ, this, the sacrifice of love that we see there is manifested in, in our love for family, for our friends, for, for strangers, for enemies, that that perfect love and that willingness to uh, pour ourselves out uh, is seen by the world. And I don't, I don't think the world is seeing it now. Uh, we just, over the weekend, I think it was in the Byzantine Rite, the, the gospel was about the uh, uh, old woman coming into the temple. And, you know, people were coming in to, the, to give their offering for the upkeep of the temple, and uh, as well as the care of the priest. But what... You know, the Lord comes in, you know, midday, probably tired from teaching and preaching, you know, dragging his apostles along with him. They sit down and they're watching this and then they see this old woman come up and throw in her two last copper coins, everything. So she throws everything into the coffers. And then it's at that moment, Christ, you know, jumps up and says, here, here is the love of the kingdom. Here's about everything that I've been talking about in the simple, unassuming action of this elderly woman. She gives everything she has. It seems very small and light uh, uh, in light of the, the calculated and guarded giving, but maybe in greater uh, abundance of those who could afford it, you know, that they, they give out of their surplus, he says. But here she gives everything that she possesses. And this becomes the, a perfect reflection of the love that will manifest itself on the cross and in the Holy Eucharist. This is what we are to bear witness to. And again, I think all these stories are, are pushing us and testing our sensibilities. Uh, if only to awaken us again to wonder or to ask questions about our life. Where, where are we living? You know, where is it that we place our hope in our day-to-day -day life? And you know, it's a good question to be asking ourselves as we are uh, approaching Lent. And you know, where is it that we place our hope? What is it that we're looking for in our religious life? and in the upcoming fast, you know, is it merely 
you know, a religious sense of fulfilling, you know, a discipline for 40 days? Or are we, are we looking for something that we see in the desire of the monks who enter into the desert and who entered into the desert? This desire to give themselves over to God completely. And this is what we are to seek to foster in our, our state, whatever it might be and our circumstances wherever we find ourselves. Okay, number 10. The elder said, an elder said, the savior had affliction and distress from the outset of his teachings. He who avoids such at the beginning does not come to know God. That is just as we make sure at the beginning of their education, the children know their letters in order that they might gain knowledge. So also when a monk is obedient, in spite of his labors and afflictions, he proves to be a fellow heir of God and a son of God. So interesting, it's along the lines of what we've been saying here that uh, you know, obedience is like learning one's ABCs. And a novice entering into a monastery is embracing this life of obedience, again, not only to set aside his, his will to humble himself, but in order that he might learn something about what has been revealed to us in Christ, we, that he might come to know Christ in an experiential way, not just in an, again, in a notional fashion, but in reality through how he's living his life, that he's being obedient and he's setting aside his will and following the guidance of another. And so he's proving right from the beginning as he enters into the monastic life that he gets it, that he's called to be uh, a fellow heir, the writer says, and a son of God. And that's true for all of us, that in our day-to-day -day life and our fidelity to Christ, we are to show that we're fellow heirs of the kingdom and sons and daughters of God. And, you know, if all that our disciplines show, you know, is, you know, through fasting or and through our other disciplines of Lent, uh, is that, you know, that we take on these peculiar disciplines through a 40-day period, it's not going to do much for us and certainly not going to do much in terms of bearing witness to the world, you know, other than making us for a little while seem like we're rigorous or that we're disciplined. And even Christ himself says that, you know, you have your reward in full. You do all these things, you fast, you pray, you give alms, but it, and if it's seen by the world, then they're going to see you in a certain light, but that's all you get. If that's as, if that's as deep as it goes for us, and it has to go much deeper. It has to be because we are seeking and we desire to be fellow heirs of the kingdom, that we desire to be sons and daughters of God. And if we lose sight of that, you know, Paul says, and we've talked about this recently, we become the most pitiable of all men to live the Christian life and to go through what Christians go through without believing in the resurrection, not only of Christ, but our own and our call to participate in the fullness of that life, 
then we are the most pitiable of all creatures. And so why do we believe what we believe? Why do we do what we do if it's not driven by these realities? 292, number 11. Abba Poiman, on hearing all that was said about Abba Nestero, was who was young and lived in the Cenobium, wished to see him. He disclosed this desire to the latter's abbot and begged him to send him to him. Indeed, when he arrived in the company of the steward of the monastery, the elder asked, Abba Nestero, whence did you acquire this virtue, such that whenever an affliction befalls the synovium, you neither speak nor intercede? Since the brother was being hard pressed by the elder for an answer, he replied, Forgive me, Abba, when I first entered the monastery, I said in my mind, you and the ass are the same thing, just as the ass, when beaten, does not speak, and when insulted, does not reply, let it be so with you, as the psalmist says, I became as a beast before thee, yet I am ever with thee. So, you know, taking as, a, as an example of a, a beast of burden, one who knows nothing else but to to carry that burden and to carry it as the master wills. And it's very similar to the stories where a monk will be sent to uh, uh, a cemetery and, you know, go there and insult, you know, all the, the dead bodies and then, and then go there and praise them. What response do you get? And the answer is always nothing. And that, that is how we are, are to be, that the world's opinion of us and the world's judgment of us and our trust in our own judgment or our own opinion is certainly even to be put to the greatest test. You know, we are not to care certainly what the world thinks of us, but what we think of ourselves and of our own judgment should be put to the test as well. And so often our judgment is limited, even when we do see something of truth. And so the safer path, this brother says, when he enters in, he determines from the beginning, okay, I know what I'm entering into. And I know that that includes this radical obedience. And so I'm going to make myself like the ass. You know, whether I'm insulted or whatever it is, I am, I'm going to, to bear it and, and allow myself to be formed and shaped by it. And the reference here to, you know, what David says in the Psalms, I think sort of brings it into a clear focus. I became as a beast before thee, yet I am ever with thee. That the fruit of the obedience is this constant communion. When we are conformed to Christ, we also live in this constant union and communion with him. And so this radical obedience, as David says in the Psalms, and as we see in this young monk, gives us a kind of freedom and allows us to keep in focus the one thing that is important, and that is the love of Christ.
Number 12, again, Abba Poyman said, a man who lives with another person should be like a marble column. When insulted, he should not get angry. And when praised, he should not be puffed up with pride. I don't know, when I, I read these the first time around, I think, oh my goodness, I'm hardly a marble column. And I'm more like a shotgun pointing back at others or have been over the course of time. Uh, but to be able to receive what others say to us, I think really speaks of a grace transforming the heart over the course of time and where one's identity uh, has been so formed and shaped in Christ. This could be something quite ugly, you know, where a person is just being a doormat and being beaten upon and insulted. Or it could be a reflection of one whose identity is so wrapped up and tied to their relationship with Christ that those things find, and those words find no purchase within one's heart, that it cannot take root. And so we become hardened to responding on an emotional level to what others say to us because our hearts have been so shaped by the grace of God that we have internalized that identity as heirs of the kingdom and as sons and daughters of God. And so somebody could say what they will about us and even do what they will to us, but it doesn't change that reality that endures unto eternity. Uh, Anthony writes, then St. Francis of Assisi was a marble pillar, almost a fool for Christ, but so joyful and at times profoundly mournful. Yes, I mean, I think there are so many saints where we see this, uh, where they, their joy in Christ is so deep that no matter what was done to them or taken away from them, uh, was not seen as a burden, nor did they look at others who did these two things to them with a kind of anger or frustration. You know, Philip Neary is a great patron of mine and uh, love him dearly, but so joyful. And, you know, as he began his ministry in Rome, there was this kind of jealousy that began to emerge and arise surrounding it and surrounding him uh, because the numbers began to grow who are participating in his groups and in this pilgrimage to the seven major, I think, basilicas within within Rome, and you know, there got to a point a point where there were like three thousand people that were a part of that pilgrimage, and uh, at one point he was silenced by the Pope. He wasn't allowed to hear confessions or to do any of these groups, and uh, because people were plotting against him and were jealous, and he embraces it in a spirit of obedience. He, he conforms to what is uh, the Holy Father uh, commands him to do. And eventually uh, it is lifted. You know, the truth comes for the truth becomes apparent. And he's able to take up his ministry once again. And we see this over and over again within the lives of the saints. You know, their, their understanding of what it is to be conformed to Christ is so deep that when these things happen, that they're not thrown out of themselves or thrown out of their prayer or become defensive, 
Uh, let's see here for one more second. Uh, Anthony writes again, did saints like Francis and Philip Neri have elders or were they directly inspired? Um, and so, uh, I, you know, with Francis, I think there was, you know, certainly uh, a, a deep personal inspiration there in terms of what God put before him and the embrace of poverty and the freedom that that brought him, you know, especially given the culture in which he found himself and within his own family. Philip Neri, I would, I would say that there was influence there by the Dominicans in Florence and uh, other people that he associated with, as well as that inspiration. You know, I think from a very early age, there was a kind of purity of heart there, a depth and love for prayer. Uh, he lived at the foot of Monte Cassino for a period of time. So one wonders if he was influenced by the Benedictines as well. Uh, but certainly deep inspiration there. Ten years in the catacombs of Rome praying all night long, I think had probably the most to do with it. Uh, and so Ambrose writes, you mean he didn't publish a blog about how wrong the Holy Father was? No. <laughs> he Philip Neri did not go on a rant against the Holy Father, which is true. Uh, you know, he just, uh, that would have been the furthest thing from his mind. Uh even if it was completely unjust, uh, because I think he knew within his heart that, you know, F Philip was a man of immense purity of heart, but that purity of heart also allowed him to see his own capacity for pride and for sin as well. That there but the grace of God go I is actually attributed to Philip Neri, that he knew of what he was capable of outside of the grace of God. And that even our virtues have to be perfected by that grace. And so if God chooses at that moment to humble him, then he had the depth of faith that he could trust that this is exactly what would, God would do. Even if he stripped it away from him permanently, he would have the capacity to trust in that providence. And I think we've moved so far away from that. Uh, in terms of this, uh, this vision of sanctity. And, uh, you know, it's often, you know, what people say or how they say it or the power with which they say it, particular gifts that one has. And often there isn't this attention to the more subtle things that are really reflective of the life of sanctity that we see in a Philip Neri or Francis uh, or Ignatius of Loyola, or, you know, all of those people, especially from the Counter-Reformation, there's so many great saints around that period of time, all of them manifest this, this kind of sanctity where they understand the value of, of obedience and humility. And, uh, you know, we, we live in this age where, you know, the trust in our own judgment is such a dangerous thing. Uh, we talked about this before, you know, and I think the evil one plays on this, that we can see certain parts of the truth with clarity. And we are even, I think, allowed to see certain things with such a clarity that we feel, okay, I get this. I see the full truth of what's going on here, and I'm going to articulate it. I'm going to say it with this 
great firmness and that I have an obligation to the church, to, to God, to justice, to speak this to the world. And the problem with that is that it often is the tricks of the demons that we see in these stories that, you know, allowing us to see a partial truth, something that is true on a certain, a certain level, but not the full truth, can lead us down a path that's incredibly destructive for the church, for ourselves, and for a multitude of souls. And so the devil is, a lot, is willing to be patient and allow us to see you know, so many things, even to grow in a certain extent in, in great sanctity, if he can envision uh, le leading us down a path or making us take a step that exalts ourselves and our judgment above God, above the church, above others. Uh, and where the fullness of that truth is hidden from us. And more importantly, the truth of the gospel and the truth that is revealed to us and given to us in the reception of the Holy Eucharist. And where he can get us to let go of that and put, put ourselves forward in this very powerful and forceful way. And we're, we're seeing it, it's, I mean, it's very sad because I think we're seeing it more and more frequently uh, you know, this a kind of adversarial relationship with the church, where what we see within the life of the saints is this willingness to suffer for her out of love and to, to bear a cross, you know, for her, if it means her, you know, uh, a healing will take place and to do that willingly. And I, I, I don't think, I think we've lost all, all vision of that. Anthony writes, well, in our time, we were not brought up with the saints. We were brought up with revolutionaries, with men who bent society to their will, with ambitious men. And this is virtue to us when we are young. So, yeah, I think so often that's true. You know, I think the models, the images that are held up for us to emulate in our day and age is exactly that, you know, the strong willed, uh, but not in the battle against uh, sin or in the ascetic life, uh, but strong willed in the sense of pursuing what they want, what they desire. And, uh, you know, uh, Ambrose writes, independence, liberty are the chief American virtues, right? And not that these things, in essence, uh, are bad, but they can become the source of great evil. And certainly when they become spiritualized, then the, they can become con absolutely contrary to the spirit of the gospel and what we see in the cross. So all good thoughts. So you, you begin to see what's emerging here in these stories. I mean, they're, they're very difficult to listen to, but I think they draw us back again and again uh, to the gospel and to, the, to Christ, to the cross. And they're unsettling, but in a good way, like a bucket of cold water to say, you know, wake up. Where are you? 
What is it? What is the deepest longing of your heart? What does God desire for you? Okay. One last one, number 13. Concerning the young John of Thebes, the disciple of Abba Amos, the following story is told. For 12 years, he served the needs of a sick elder and stayed with him in a ravine. For all that, the elder mistreated him. And although John labored very hard for him, the elder never once greeted him with, may you be saved. When the elder was about to die and the other elders were sitting around him, he held young John's hand and said to him the words, may you be saved, may you be saved, may you be saved. He then turned him over to the elders saying to them, this one here is an angel, not a man. So he serves this elderly monk out of pure love and obedience, despite the fact that something was lacking in the elder, that he's unable to uh, proclaim his desire for this young monk, uh, you know, for his salvation and for his good, which would have been a common greeting. May you be saved. Uh, a beautiful thing, certainly, to, to say to an, another. And he was able to bear it all the way up to the moment when this individual dies and where there was no gratitude whatsoever, no love and affection shown until that last moment when the elderly monk realizes what he had, what he had in him. This was an angel of God given to me. Look at him as a model. And, you know, again, th these are really powerful images for us you know, in terms of this gentle service and patience with others, love in the face of what we might be experiencing or not experiencing from them in return. And to be able to give ourselves over because this is what obedient love does. And not to allow our, our emotion uh, to cloud our, our vision or what we or alter our path. You know, I'm sure there were times where it was very hard for this young monk when he was mistreated by the elder to stay along that path. And yet the whole, uh, the whole focus of the monastic life would enabled him to do it, that this was the lens through which they viewed their life. That yes, it's going to be difficult. But what we have, the one who is the standard for us, the one who shows us the way to walk this path is ever before us, and not only ever before us, but within us, to give us the capacity to love like this. Okay, folks, that brings us to 8.30. Anyone have any final comments or questions before we conclude for the evening? Mm -hmm. Okay, very good. Thank you for your comments. Again, excellent, all of them. And such a joy for a Monday night. It's a great way to spend, spend an hour. So why don't we close as always with our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God.